If you're a parent, teacher, or school leader, and you're sick and tired of the frustration, anger, and unfair treatment of children at high risk in our public schools, then perhaps it's time for all of us to do something about it. In this podcast, Dr. Amitra Berry brings you tips, tools, strategies, and tactics to build successful solutions while touching, moving, and inspiring all of us to transform our schools so that every child thrives. Here's your host, Dr. Berry. Hey there, Equity Warriors. Welcome to today's episode. I am uh, turning the tables a little bit, as it were. Even though this is my podcast, I have a special guest that's going to do something a little bit different. Today, I have Coach Wendy Stevens, a renowned guerrilla marketing expert. Wendy has coached and trained more than 80,000 people in 136 countries to master the art of guerrilla marketing, lead generation, and sales. She's consulted, launched, and marketed podcasts for Dr. Daniel Amen, Sharon Lecter, who's the co-author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and for all you beehive folks, Matthew Knowles, the father of international music sensation, Beyonce. Wendy co-authored the book, The Best of Guerrilla Marketing, with the late, great J. Conrad Levinson, the father of guerrilla marketing, and well-known marketing author, Seth Godin. She also recently developed the seven sexy guerrilla marketing strategies for podcast promotion. So, yes, even though this is my show, I think you can see the connection. Wendy is going to be interviewing me today. So, Wendy, welcome to the show. Well, Dr. Barry, let me just ask you a question. You're doing incredible work, diversity, equity, inclusion, and equity for all children in the schools. Let me ask you, can you take me back to your childhood? Do you remember when's the first recollection that you have that not everything was equitable for kids in school? I would say probably my greatest recollection would be in middle school. I went to school at a time, this always dates me, but when kids were tracked and there was a gifted track, an A track, a B track, and a C track, I was in the gifted track. But I could see that the friends that I had that were in A, B, and you know, a few people that I knew that were in the C track weren't exactly getting the same thing we were. They weren't getting the same challenges. Their books looked different. There was definitely a disconnect between or a tremendous inequity is what I would say now in terms of the opportunities they had for field trips and educational enrichment. But as a child, you don't really think about that. You just, you know, you know what you have, even though you know that or recognize that some of your friends weren't getting quite the same thing. I think it was probably high school before I realized that our life outcomes were going to be impacted by the tracks that we were in in our classes. Wow. So let me let me ask you just from school in general, when you go back to elementary school, middle school, who was your favorite teacher and why? Oh, that's always an easy one. It's a story that I share. Her name was Lynn Gowdy, Mrs. Gowdy. She was my third grade teacher. And that year was a difficult year for me. The prior year, I'd lost my father. I saw him shot to death. And so facing that trauma that I now realize was trauma, 
I had essentially shut down. I was always sort of a quiet and shy child. And I know that's really hard for people to imagine now, but I was just withdrawn. I didn't talk. I didn't have but a few friends. But in Mrs. Gowdy's classroom, something was very different. She had pulled me out of the Dick and Jane reading group and she gave me instructional materials. She gave me books to read. It was not the regular stuff that everyone else was reading. She gave me books about Black heroes, about Black people, Black stories that would connect with me. What I always also like to clarify is that Mrs. Gowdy was a white woman. So she had this great sense of cultural awareness and what culturally relevant instruction should look like. And maybe it was just instinctive in her. But as all of the teachers that I can remember that were really good teachers, she is the one that stands out because she really made a difference in how I felt about school and how I felt about myself and really how I felt about the world. Wow. So let me ask you, as a woman of color, who would you say has inspired you the most on this path? Oh, that's a tough one. I don't know that there is one single person. I think that there are bits and pieces of several women's lives that have inspired me bits and pieces or stories that I've read about their lives, about their works. I don't think there's one that I could name. But I am constantly inspired by the things that we do as Black women and overcoming a lot of the inequity that we face, discrimination, disproportionality, the challenges that come with the intersectionality of race and gender in this country. So, you know, there's a book, White Fragility, that comes to mind. And that was for someone I see myself as wanting to be aware. Mm -hmm. And that book smacked me like a cold, wet fish to not even have context because of the family I was born into and not even being aware how much different, you know, most, most young girls experiences are in the world, let alone, you know, the inequities in this country, the most affluent country in the world where we have assets, we have resources and we have freedom of speech. And so let me ask you, and I'm asking you, of course, as a a white woman that wants this world to be a better place when I leave. And I know that I know that I know that this topic is mission critical for that to be true. So for a white woman or white mother involved in wanting to support a school, what's the number one thing that I could do that we could do to help support real lasting change? I only get one. (laughs) Oh, as many as you want. Top 10, bring them. Well, I I first want to commend you on reading White Fragility. Uh, Having read both her first work, White Fragility, and her second work, Nice Racism. Nice Racism is the book that I recommend to my white friends, my white allies, who want to understand better what to do. So I guess if there was one thing that you could do, I would say, having read White Fragility, read Nice Racism. And in it, there are, she actually calls out the behaviors that you engage in. You've started your path forward and you recognize that there are huge inequities and 
pretty much because of what families we were born into in this country. You can't change that part. The system is built, but doing the work in changing the way the system operates and changing the way our schools operate means that we then start to look at those individual behaviors that we engage in and saying, wait a minute, that is racism, even though it doesn't feel like it. So probably the one easy one for people to recognize and start calling themselves out on is credentialing. And it's this, you know, someone says something, you said, but, or you'll hear people say, but I have black friends, or I know about this because I have this black friend who that's credentialing. And while you may have some sense of, I have a black friend, so that makes me okay. That isn't all that makes you okay. A lot of people say they have friends who are people of color, but they've never invited them to their home. They've not spent real genuine time with them. Even friends that I've had since childhood who are white women have said things to me, and I we've been friends forever, but have said things that make me say, did you just hear what came out of your mouth or did you think about what you said and how that might affect me and that it was either derogatory or harmful to people of color. And it's, I know that they did not intend for it to be mean, but just the not knowing. So it's a continuous work, Wendy, where you Mm. keep looking at the behaviors that you have and working to change them. And with that, that sort of groundswell of people doing that individual work, we start to see all of the little pieces, the behaviors, the things that are wrong within the system. And that's how we start to change the system in and of itself. Got it. So what can teachers do if they're just really decided, you know, I've seen it too much, too long. I really want to be a part, again, of lasting change. What can teachers do in the context of the way things change at their school? What can they do? Sure. Teachers have a tremendous ability to be able to change what happens in day-to-day instruction. So starting with that work and looking at their own individual behaviors, I always ask teachers, what is your fundamental belief about every single child? You know, digging down deep, do you fundamentally believe that every single child is worth your time, your effort, extra work to make sure that they have the outcomes that are going to give them a positive life trajectory? When you start looking at those deep fundamental beliefs, that's when you can start to really think about changing your instructional practices. I'm working on, actually working on an episode for my podcast, getting all my notes together, and I've got this title, Pale, Male, and Stale. And the second thing that teachers can start doing is looking at their methods and their practices, are they, and their curriculum, the content, and is it pale, as in white-centered, is it male, as in male-centered, and is it stale, as in old and worn out, right? So, Are we using materials and methods that tell a story from a very old white perspective and male perspective, or are we using materials and giving children instruction and enrichment based on the various peoples from around the world and multicultural stories from multicultural voices? So not a story about indigenous children written by a white person who went to visit but by indigenous peoples themselves, right? So genuine stories and the full history of this country 
from all perspectives, not a pale male and stale perspective. Wow. So what about superintendents, principals? Is there something next level that they can do practically, politically? What else can, you know, at that level of leadership, what else can be done? Well, politically is the scary part. As you know, if you're a superintendent, you are only a superintendent for as long as your board believes that you can do the job and they're accepting. And with the political climate that we live in, a lot of what's happening with school boards and we're in the middle of an election season right now, right? So you have people trying to get on school boards, not to represent the people in their communities, but to represent an agenda that's built on a false narrative. And it's built on a narrative where they want to sustain that very white-centered political power and not recognizing that 80% of our children are children of color. So principals and superintendents are in a sort of precarious position. They A, they have to have the support of their school boards. And if they have that, then the one thing that they can do is to make sure that every single teacher, every educator, every school administrator, school secretary, clerical staff, everyone has professional learning that is built on cultural awareness and cultural competence. It's not just the teachers in the classroom. School systems are systems, and they've been built, A, in a factory model that's outdated. We need to look at what our children need now to be productive citizens as they grow into it. And they also need to look at who the children are in their schools. In serving children who are a majority of color or a school that is a majority of color, you have to provide professional learning for all staff and faculty that is built around cultural awareness so that they understand the students that they're serving. Again, our universities now, they're slowly changing, but universities are built on that pale, male, and stale system as well. And so even, you know, when I was in teacher school, I learned methods that were built for middle-class mainstream white children. If that's what we go into the classrooms with and our principals and superintendents don't give us the opportunity to have professional learning to change that mindset, to change those practices, we're not going to change schools as a whole. So now let's get to, you know, we have midterm elections coming up. We have a presidential election around the corner, really. It's amazing to me. It used to, four years used to feel so far <laughs> apart. But so what can I, what should I be looking at with candidates? Can I look up records that really affect, again, the outcome, the lasting change we're talking about? That's a really tough question. And here's why it's tough. Most politicians do not have a background in education. Mm. So- You know, and really, if you now I was a political science major as an undergrad. Right. So politics is, you know, a little near and dear to my heart. And you might even say I'm a bit of a political junkie, but they're being influenced by lobbyists. Right. So it's who they're taking their money from. They're going to say whatever they have to say to get in the office. Even when you look at their voting records, sometimes it may not necessarily reflect what they've said. So and that's a lot of work for most people to do. Even going with who is supporting or recommending them, it might be okay. Uh, But again, that depends on the political environment in which you live. So it's almost a crapshoot as to whether or not the people who say they are pro-education are really and truly pro-education. 
You've got this divide between, you know, we think the mainstream thinking would be that Democrats are pro-public education and Republicans aren't. But the greatest push into raising achievement for all children and having instructional academic equity for all children came under George Bush's administration and No Child Left Behind. A lot of people will scream when I say that. But when we look at where we actually started closing achievement gaps, it was because of those policies. They were not always welcome. It was hard work. There was accountability, which was huge. But in the many systems that I worked in in that period of time, all large, all urban, all public, we did see tremendous growth in our children of color. And it was because of that. So it's difficult. You also have the difference between, you know, the political difference between regular K-12 public schools and public charter schools, which are public schools, but are not supported by the Democrats. Democrats do a lot for public education, but there's still this divide. So I always say I am an issues voter. And so I look at the people that are going to support those issues in my community, and I look very closely and carefully at them and then have to do the best that I can to vote for the people who will support the children in our public schools who are most marginalized and are most at risk. I wish it was as easy as saying vote this ticket or vote that ticket. Unfortunately, it's. Yeah, I asked that question from really wanting to know, and I just actually you know, I'm such a Google girl, right? I'll just yeah. <laughs> kind of dive in. And I just try to be very careful that I'm actually going to the source and yeah. not someone's blog about the source or whatever. So listen, beyond the elections, building new schools, what else? Is there anything else that, I don't want to say the average person, the person that cares, because that's not average, right? For the person that cares. No, and let's go back. I want. I actually want to ask this. Mm-hmm. So If I really, let's say I care about, wow, what we build more prisons than schools. So if someone, maybe they're not aware of the inequity, but they care about society. They just don't get what really happens. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, when, if, what was it? $1 put into, you know, being aware of the equity for kids in school, compare that to what happens with building prisons and all that stuff. Right. So the easy way for me to remember, for the average person to remember, is that it's cheaper to educate than to incarcerate. There we go. So and it depends on what state you're living in. Are you talking about state prisons, federal prisons, county jails, et cetera? Um, But essentially, we spend on children. So a student in K-12, an average of about, I think it's $8,000 per year for their education. But if we were to incarcerate that child, put them in juvenile detention, it's almost five times that amount. And we also know the long-term implications of putting a child into the juvenile justice system means that they're less likely to graduate from high school. They're less likely to be able to hold a job. They're more likely to either end up on welfare or unemployment, right? So there's this continual cost over time by not educating the child. We're choosing to build ways to incarcerate them rather and or continually oppress them than to educate them. If we would just teach them, the other number that's coming to my head is socio-emotional learning, right? So every dollar that we spend on socio-emotional learning or because that in some states has become 
another boogeyman. They're calling it CRT. No, in corporate America, they're called soft skills, right? They're people skills and understanding how to negotiate with other people, to hear ideas from people that may not think like you, right? Those people skills, soft skills, that's socio-emotional learning. If we teach that to children while they're K-12, we have fewer problems with adults who don't know how to relate to one another. So again, that's $1 in SEL saves us $11 later on by having either because of policing, incarceration, social work that needs to be done, all those other social ills that come about from people not having those people skills or soft skills. So take us 10 years down the road, Dr. Barry. If we're 10 years down the road and we look back and go, wow, what incredible progress, what would that look like? Oh, I always call that Utopia Unified School District. Um, <laughs> of course, I, I, and I've been saying it for 20 years. It's like, we know what to do. Why can't we just do it? Mm. 10 years down the road, if we do the things that we know we need to do in terms of developing, because it's not just choosing curriculum that's right for your learners. It means that we have educational publishing companies who develop curriculum that's appropriate for the children in schools and appropriate from a multitude of perspectives, right? Is it the right methodology, the right approach, the right pace, the right rigor, the right stories in terms of literature, the representation, the pictures that people, that the children see in their textbooks? And I always use the example of science. Can we have science books that show women scientists and people of color scientists, all people represented because they're out there, um, but they're not making it into the books, right? So when children have that representation, they see themselves becoming those things and that builds a greater belief in themselves and a greater desire for them to be engaged in public education and to do well in the classroom. So 10 years down the road, if we're doing all those right things, if we're teaching cultural awareness and cultural competence and how to teach through a lens of equity at teacher preparation schools, which means that those professors have had that work as well, means that we're creating teachers that go into systems who are teaching from that frame. We're developing leaders who understand that this is what children need and superintendents and school boards who create and support those systems to change those outcomes. That's a lot to ask for. But with that, we should not see a black, white, a brown, white, an Asian white, and any indigenous white. We shouldn't see those achievement gaps that we keep talking about. We should not see the disproportionality in referrals to special education. We should not see the disproportionality in suspensions and expulsions. There are so many things that are systemic ills right now that could be overcome if we just really everybody within the system, or at least that get to that tipping point where there are enough of us in the system that have a mindset and a lens of equity for all the children that we're serving. So, you know, when I can't help but think for just a minute, I remember being in, uh, remember exactly where I was when Barack Obama was elected president. And here we have Judge Jackson, right, who's not just finally been elected, when I say finally, a woman of color elected the Supreme Court. But won't it be great when we don't even say that? Won't it be great when we have this amazing woman who's, you know, served incredibly as a judge, 
And here she is. She's not just on the Supreme Court. She's standing out on the Supreme Court. That's the human she is. That's the mind she is. Won't it be great when we don't even have to say a black president, a black member Supreme Court? But I do want to celebrate that those two glass ceilings were broken. Yes. Um, Do you see that as really changing the next 20 years where we just don't even have to talk about it? You know, I thought about that, not precisely that, but something sort of adjacent to it the other day as I was something that came up in my briefs I was reading about California and gay marriage. And I remember, I believe it was like 2000, no, it was in the 1990s because I was still in the classroom. I think I was relatively early in my teaching career where Californians voted to not allow gay marriage in the state of California. And we look at California now and we think California did that. Yeah, they did. California even did not allow for bilingual instruction. Right. So for children who came to school speaking Spanish or another home language, they were not allowed to have instruction in their primary language. That was happening in California in my lifetime. So you look at California now. That's not the California we see. And that's been less than always age these things by my children, certainly less than 30 years ago. So is it possible in 20 years that we have shifted that much as a whole society? It would be wonderful. I think that we can make huge strides in that and not have to say, oh, look, it's a black woman who's finally been named to the Supreme Court. But just that we have a Supreme Court that reflects America as we are, um, Mm. which is an America of many shades of skin, of many origins of racial identity and gender identity. When we have systems where we don't have to call out that it's unique, that would be a wonderful place to live. Mm. Can we do it in 20 years? Maybe. You know, I can't help but look back 20 years Mm -hmm. and see where we are now and go, this is not okay. This is not okay. What's been the biggest barrier blockade? What needs to change going forward? I want to wrap up with that. I think the biggest barrier to systemic change is the desire of the entrenched power systems, people that are in power, that are entrenched, in their thinking and their desire to hold on to power, as opposed to a desire to do what's best for the next generation. Change is never easy. We always joke about, you know, the only people who like change are babies when their diapers are dirty, but it's something that is going to require the commitment to go through a certain amount of pain, almost like going through the five stages of grief and getting over it. Because if we don't, if the people who are in power, and that's a very small group of people when you think about it, but who wield tremendous power across all our lives, if they're not willing to change, if we're not willing to vote them out and put people in who will change, we can't make those shifts. So I think that that, you know, this is very political, but our longstanding two-party political system is probably the biggest problem that we have. Because we're almost forced to choose sort of one of two evils. And both of them, if we listen carefully, their greatest desire is to maintain power. Their greatest desire is not to change this country for the better, but it's to keep the other party from getting what they want. Got it. Well, Dr. Barry, 
thank you for your dedication, your focus, your commitment. You're uniquely equipped to lead this charge to make lasting change. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for having me, Wendy. That's it for today's episode of the 3E Podcast. Head over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in a grand prize drawing to win a $25,000 value private VIP day with Dr. Barry herself. Be sure to head over to 3epodcast.com and pick up a free copy of Dr. Barry's gift. Then join us on the next episode.